Midtown Detroit studios of WDET. This is Detroit Today. The leaked Supreme Court opinion overturning Roe v. Wade has the entire country debating anew the rights we hold dear, the role of our courts, and the culture war that has raged between left and right for decades. We're going to spend today hearing from you about reproductive rights and other constitutional protections, and we'll be joined by a fantastic expert, University of Michigan law professor Barb McQuaid. That's all next on Detroit Today. But first, the news from NPR. Good day, and welcome to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson. And as always, I'm really glad you've tuned in. It's still really hard to say or even believe, but five decades of legal precedents that guaranteed safe legal abortions in America could soon come to a very abrupt end. This week, Politico obtained a draft U.S. Supreme Court majority opinion that would overturn Roe v. Wade. And it wouldn't just obliterate this precedent. It trounces Roe in ways that could have sweeping and noxious effects on a lot of different aspects of American life and law. As someone who has observed the court for a really long time, I've got to say, I'm not sure I've seen anything, any opinion, that seems to take such an aggressive approach to undoing so much of the fabric of the law as it pertains to our individual rights. Now, it's really important to note that this draft opinion is not final, it's not official, And, of course, it's not unheard of for the court to change its decisions before a ruling gets handed down. This draft came out apparently in February, and we don't expect a ruling from the court really until late June at the the latest, really. Um, There's no question that a lot could change in an opinion in that length of time, and it's reasonable to surmise that the leak here was made, at least in part, to try to influence those changes. So, for now, abortion is still legal everywhere in America, and we don't really know what the court plans to do about that. But this draft certainly signals that a majority of the court seems eager to revisit Roe in some substantial way. And it suggests, again, that there are lots of other individual rights that maybe this court doesn't believe ought to look the way Americans have become accustomed to them looking. So that's where we start this show. And that's where we are in this American moment. With a lot of uncertainty, I think there's a lot of fear I think there's a lot of anger, and there's a lot of questions still unanswered about how the court will deal with one of the most personal issues that the law ever touches in our country. We want to spend the day today talking about all of these issues and hearing from you about how you're feeling. Have you seen this draft opinion from the court? What was your immediate reaction to it? But also, now that we've had a few days to digest this and to talk with our friends and colleagues about it and maybe watch the incredible coverage that's uh, unfolded about this, uh, how do you think about all of this? How do you react to it? How do you think we should be reacting to it? As always, you can call us here on the phones at 313 577 
That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page and put comments there, or you can go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and we can, we can uh, include you in the conversation that way. We especially want to hear, of course, from women during this conversation. This ruling is about their reproductive freedom. It is about their bodies. How do you feel about that? Do you think that's a place that the government ought to have a lot of say over what happens? Are you a woman who's had an abortion or thought about an abortion or confronted the many questions that families have to confront uh, when there is a pregnancy that is either unwanted or perhaps is unsafe. Call and tell us how you sorted through that. Call and tell us whether you thought much about the fact that Roe v. Wade made those decisions possible for you, made them legal and safe. Again, 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones, and you can go to Facebook and Twitter and put comments there. We, of course, have a really great guest uh, with us as well to help sort through all of these different dynamics. Uh, Barb McQuaid is a law professor at the University of Michigan. She's the former U.S. attorney for the Eastern District of Michigan, and she's co-host of the Sisters in Law podcast. Barb, welcome back to Detroit Today. Thanks, Stephen. Good to be with you today. So I want to start here. I I don't know that any of us who pay pretty close attention to the court and have paid attention to the court, especially over the last five or six years, um, we're we're terribly surprised by the result that is reached in this draft opinion. Um, At the same time, there were lots of things about this that were shocking. Uh, There were lots of things about this uh, that at least I thought were not probable uh, with with regard to the way that the court would uh, figure all of these issues out. Um, I, I'm really curious to know what your reaction was, uh, whether there was a surprise or a number of surprises uh, in this opinion for you as well. Yeah, you know, I, I suppose because we could kind of see this coming, I can't say I was surprised, but I was still appalled. Um, you know, when when the court took up this case after the lower courts had struck down this statute um, out of Mississippi that banned abortions after 15 weeks, that you know that didn't bode well because the only reason to take it up would be to reverse it. Um, and then at oral arguments, I think we saw a lot of hostility toward Roe and the right to an abortion. Um, but it was still shocking and appalling to me for a few reasons. One is um, this notion of stare decisis, things settled, that uh, courts are supposed to follow precedent. And I think that regardless of an individual justice's view on a particular issue, um, they're supposed to do that, except in very rare circumstances. And there are tests for when they should do that, like the facts of the law have changed or people have not relied on this in their life or the standard has proven unworkable or has become inconsistent with other laws. And none of those things are true for Roe. And so what I had hoped, I guess, was to see something that we saw about 20 years ago in a case called Dickerson. That was when the Miranda uh, rights were sort Mm -hmm. of up on the chopping block. Very similar reasons. You know, there are a lot of people who said this was judicial activism. This is, you know, this was just made up. These words don't appear in the Constitution. And the court took it up. And in oral argument, they expressed some hostility. But then even Justice, Chief Justice then William Rehnquist, a staunch conservative, mm-hmm. said, you know, wrote the opinion and they, they maintained Miranda. And what he said there was, you know, even though if I were writing from a clean slate, I would absolutely change this. And I think it was wrongly decided. But um, Americans have relied on this so much and it has become so much part of the, the fabric of our culture. And it works pretty well that um, I've been persuaded that we should follow precedent and we should not disrupt this. So I've changed my mind from my initial view that we should hear this case. And it was good for us to go through it, but precedent matters. And you know, to have the law settled is most important. And so we're, we're going to keep the Miranda rule. I was hoping we might see an outcome like that, but 
um, apparently the current uh, group thinks less of Starry Decisis than William Rehnquist did. Yeah. And, and I think it's really important to stop uh, for a second here and talk about the way in which stare decisis is addressed in this opinion. Uh, it's not just that it's different than the way that uh, Rehnquist did in Dickerson or that the court has done in many, many other cases. Um, there's a sloppiness here uh, to the the approach to considering sorry decisis. I mean, uh, it, it, the opinion comes right out and says uh, Roe was egregiously wrong from the start, and that's a that's a comment I want to come back to a little later in another context. But but in this context, it, it is just a second guessing of the original opinion. Uh, Justice Alito, and and assuming that this is a draft that he wrote, uh, doesn't go through those tests of when to overturn stare decisis, to, to, to talk about why Roe, for instance, has not been relied on, or uh, the circumstances have changed dramatically since 1973, uh, or, or, or any of the other tests. This is just an assault on the original decision in a way that I, I have a hard time coming up with with other instances where the court did that. No, you know, they love to trot out um, Brown versus Board of Education. I think, uh, you know, to, to um, perhaps, uh, you know, a case that has resonance for people on the left, sure. uh, most certainly, uh, that that overturned Plessy versus Ferguson, which was, you know, the separate but equal uh, concept. And that's true. But what we haven't seen is the court overturning precedent to restrict rights. We have seen the court overturn precedent to expand rights. That's right. Because the Constitution is thought of as this safety net that protects us from state overreach. And what they've done instead is take a right that has been on the books for almost 50 years and, and take it away. And as you say, not based on these normal uh, factors that are considered in stare decisis, but instead just saying it was egregiously wrong. You know, but, but it basically the, the view that William Rehnquist rejected uh, 20 years ago in Dickerson and saying, you know, it's not, it's not my personal opinion. The court is an institution and we are here to make sure it is guided along the way um, that the institution has respect, that we follow the rules. And that's more important than any one case based on my personal view. And so I think you can't help but think that really the only thing that has changed since 1973 is the makeup of the court mm -hmm. and not just the, who, who got appointed by a Republican and who got appointed by a Democrat. Um, Roe is a 7-2 majority opinion with five Republicans voting in favor of that decision. I think what it really shows is just how far right the Republican Party has moved and the judicial candidates they select. Yeah. Yeah. I, again, a really important uh, kind of footnote in all of this. Uh, Sam Alito uh, is overruling uh, a, a group of Republican judges who have uh, who wrote the original Roe opinion uh, and have considered it, considered challenges to it over time. Every court that has upheld Roe had a majority of Republican appointees on it. So this is not even uh, a pushback against uh, liberal or Democratic sensibilities on the court. This is uh, a perversion, really, of of the conservatism uh, that other justices have uh, have brought to to the job. Uh, okay, I, I do want to get to the phones because uh, I think uh, people's personal experiences and uh, opinions of this issue are are really critical uh, to the discussion. And again, you can join us at three one three five seven seven one zero one nine. That's three one three five seven seven one zero one nine. Or you can go to social media and put comments there. Let's start with Jeannie in Ann Arbor. Jeannie, welcome to the show. Good morning. Um, I'm calling as a new mom. I found out I was pregnant in March. I had a baby in November. And my experience was less than optimal. I was very ill the entire time. I had to take medications to try to manage my illness. And not only that, I had to go go and kind of create my own care plan for myself as an educated, you know, I'm a healthcare professional as a healthcare professional and as, um, as 
the person in my household who carries the health insurance and a full-time employee. And I even worked an additional job on top of that. And it was one of the most traumatic and horrific experiences of my life, Mm. just Mm. trying to manage the illness on top of it. And, you know, I think the irony is just a few days before Mother's Day, this, you know, Supreme Court uh, opinion was leaked, which is very traumatizing in and of itself. And I'm now faced with, you know, 10 years, maybe nine years to try to figure out what to do for my child that was just born, who may not have the same rights that I have had my entire life. And, you know, part of what I think, too, is we're going to have to start calling a spade a spade. Mm. This is now going to be state-mandated childbirth, maybe not state-mandated conception or pregnancy, but state-mandated childbirth, where Mm. your options are you either die and, you know, the question of, okay, at what point is a woman potentially going to die? And, you know, at what point, you know, your options are to die or to give birth. And we have two categories. We have state-mandated childbirth for women over 18 and state-mandated childbirth for underage children. And and that possibility as a healthcare professional, as an occupational therapist, as a, as a parent, is it's horrifying. Yeah. Jeannie, I, I, I really appreciate you calling, sharing your experience, which I think is really important and critical to this debate as well. Uh, but, but then also really putting it in that, in that context of what right are we talking about here and what government powers are we talking about here? That is the central tension uh, in this debate is what individual rights do we retain to have control over our bodies and what happens to them? Um, and what right does the government have uh, to intrude into that sphere of, of privacy? Uh, uh, Barbara McQuaid, uh, I want to get you to react to what Jeannie's talking about in both regards, but especially this question of that tension between uh, privacy and and government uh, government power and whether in fact uh, a post row America would be uh, an America with mandated childbirth. That's, a, that's such a powerful phrase uh, that Jeannie coined there. Yeah, Jeannie, thanks for sharing your story. Um, you know, I I gave birth four times. Uh, I did so in the context of a. Uh, stable, loving relationship with financial security, good health, and easy pregnancies. Hmm. Um, and yet, um, although uh, as a, a devout Christian, I, I don't think I would have an abortion. Um, I 100% believe that every woman should make that choice for herself, having been through that experience. Um, and I, I think it is uh, the idea that the state can tell you um, what you can and can't do, you know, the very same people who are complaining about mask rules <laughs> and say that's an intrusion on their uh, bodily autonomy would would force people to uh, endure a pregnancy at, at, and give birth. Um, and also, you know, you got to think about all the different contexts where this applies. Um, you know, I think so often when people are thinking about who gets an abortion, um, they're thinking about uh, single people who are sexually promiscuous, and this will make them stop. Um, it's twelve-year-olds who get raped. It's uh, you know twelve-year-olds uh, who are, are you know, raped by the by a creepy uncle and uh, are victims of incest. Um, it's uh, uh, um, people who are uh, poor, people who are wealthy. Uh, one in four women in America get abortions. And so the idea that uh, if abortion is illegal, we're going to stop abortion, I think, is a fallacy. I think what it means is we're going to stop safe and legal abortions. People are going to choose to have them in back alleys, uh, on their own, self-induced. Uh, Before Roe, there were something like 4,000 cases in the emergency room in Cook County every year mm. with uh, people who came in with uh, botched uh, abortions. And so... Uh, but this idea of the state forcing people, and you know, there's this idea that well, you could leave the state, you could go to another state, 
to get an abortion. That works for people of means. It does not work for people who are poor. It does not work for young people who don't have resources. So they are forced to make this horrible choice between forced birth and self, um, self-abortion. Um, and there are also other people who can't leave. How about if you are imprisoned in a state that forbids abortion? How about if you are in the military uh, stationed to a state that does not permit abortion? And so there, there really are going to be a lot of situations of forced birth um, that is, is really, I think, uh, a violation of all of the privacy rights that have undergirded not only Roe, but a number of other cases that have come along since mm-hmm. then. Yeah. Okay, coming up, we are going to continue this conversation with Barb McQuaid about this leaked SCOTUS opinion overturning Roe v. Wade, the future of abortion and reproductive rights in America, the future of lots of different kinds of uh, individual rights that are implicated by this uh, by this opinion. We also want to continue to hear from you on the phones and on social media. 313-577-1019 is the number. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Facebook and Twitter for comments there. Sheena in Waterford, Karen in Macomb County, Leah in Detroit. You'll be up next. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. Bringing you news that matters. Stories that impact your life. Music from the Motor City and around the world. This is 1019 WDET. Detroit's NPR station. You're listening to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. We're talking about the leaked SCOTUS opinion that would overturn Roe v. Wade. Uh, happened earlier this week, has set ablaze the conversation about reproductive rights, uh, individual rights in our country. Um, we're talking with Barb McQuaid, who's a law professor at the University of Michigan and former U.S. attorney here in Detroit. Uh, she's also co-host of the Sisters in Law podcast. Uh, we want to hear from you as well about your reaction to this leaked opinion, your sense of how uh, the court might uh, deal with uh, reproductive rights in the future if it overturns Roe v. Wade. What will, what will life in America look like? What will reproductive choices look like uh, in America? As always, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Facebook and Twitter and put comments there, uh, and uh, we'll include you in the conversation. Uh, Barb, before we go back to our listeners, I want to I uh, take a moment to talk about a part of uh, what is going on in this leaked opinion that really stands out uh, to me. Um, so in 2006, when Justice Alito was sitting in front of the Senate Judiciary Committee and answering questions in advance of his confirmation uh, to the Supreme Court, he was asked many times, as all uh, nominees are these days, about Roe v. Wade and abortion. And I remember sitting in in the room uh, up on Capitol Hill where those hearings were taking place and and listening to what he said. Uh, I also remember writing at the time that Justice Alito had gone further than lots of other justices had at that point um, in talking about how strong a precedent he believed Roe was. Uh, And I want to play a little clip of what he said in response to Illinois Senator Dick Durbin, who asked him whether he agreed with uh, Chief Justice John Roberts that Roe is the settled law of the land. It was decided in 1973, so it's been on the books for a long time. It has been challenged on a number of occasions, and I discussed those yesterday. And it is my, and the Supreme Court has reaffirmed the decision, sometimes on the merits, sometimes in Casey, based on stare decisis. And I think that when a decision is challenged and it is reaffirmed, that strengthens its value as stare decisis for at least two reasons. First of all, the more often a decision is reaffirmed, the more people tend to rely on it. 
And secondly, I think stare decisis reflects the view that there is wisdom embedded in decisions that have been made by prior justices who take the same oath and are scholars and are conscientious. And when they examine a question and they reach a conclusion, I think that's entitled to considerable respect. And of course, the more times that happens, the more respect the decision is, is entitled to. And that's my, that's my view of that. The more times it happens, the more respect the president is entitled to, is what he said there. And again, I remember so clearly thinking that was a more, um, it was a more effusive defense of the idea, not just of Roe being precedent, but of the idea of the sanctity uh, of precedent. Fast forward to now, uh, and this in this leaked opinion, uh, Sam Alito apparently writes that Roe was egregiously wrong from the jump. Now, I, I can't in literal or intellectual terms reconcile those two statements. Um, I, I, I wonder if you can talk about the danger uh, of having somebody on the court who apparently um, was, was, was comfortable with either dissembling or just outright lying. I mean, I don't know how else to describe uh, the discrepancy between what he said then and what he is apparently written now. Yeah, I, I agree. Um, it's uh, Justice Alito would never be able to get away with that statement in his own court. Lawyers are not like politicians. Lawyers are not like media commentators. When you are an officer of the court and you are testifying under oath as he was, you're expected to tell not only the truth, but you're supposed to avoid misleading. And although, as I listen to that, I don't hear anything that's literally untrue. I mean, he's basically talking about precedent really, really, really matters. Um, but he doesn't say it can never be overturned. Mm -hmm. And uh, I'm crossing my fingers behind my back where you can't see and when I get my chance, man, Roe is gone. <laughs> um, you know, there has been this tradition on the court. Um, I think it was Justice Ginsburg who started it. And I don't disagree with it. This idea of I'm not going to tell you how I might rule on any case because that would prejudge the case. And it's really important to see the facts uh, and the legal issues. You can't just say in a vacuum, I would overturn Roe or I would affirm Roe no, no, no matter what. I mean, that would really be kind of uh, unprincipled to do that. But as a result, uh, whenever they're asked straight on, so does that, you know, the, the obvious follow-up would be, okay, so you think, sorry, decisive is super important. Does that mean you will never overturn Roe then, mm -hmm. right? You can assume that. It's locked in. It's good law. He would say, I can't ever answer a question about how I might rule in any particular case because, uh, you know, that would be um, unfair and unprincipled. Yeah. And so, um I don't know what the answer is. How do you get around it? But I, I agree that I think he was dissembling. I agree. I think he was misleading. I'm sure he gen generally believes that, except when uh, he cares more about the substance than he does about the institution, as as was apparent with the, the abortion issue. Yeah. yeah. Well, I, and I think at minimum, I mean, to say, as this opinion does, that Roe was egregiously wrong from the jump, that's not an, uh, that's not an opinion in that he describes coming to uh, in the time since he's been on the court. I mean, it, it, right. it says, I always believed that. At minimum, you're being asked under oath what you think about Roe v. Wade. Um, uh, why not Why not say it? Of course you can't say that because you, you wouldn't have been confirmed. Um, yeah. but, but again, this question of truthfulness and, and misleading is, uh, is so bothersome to me. And again, I wouldn't say that about some of the other justices who are on the court who I thought were more evasive about uh, this question and left wide open uh, the, the possibility that they would that they would do something like this. Uh, and so, I, you know, it, it, it's something that just has been bothering me all week. Um, the, the, the stark contrast here between what he said uh, and what he's doing. Um, again, 313-577-1019 is the number here on the phones. Uh, I want to go to Leah in Detroit. Leah, welcome to the show. Hi, Stephen. Thanks for uh, having this conversation, and thank you for including me in it. Sure, sure. 
Um, I am not going to talk too much about the legislation bit. I'm just calling as someone who has experienced this firsthand, so I'll just throw a couple comments out. Um, I didn't get um, my abortion in the U.S. Um, when I found out that I was pregnant and I was uh, first trying to make those arrangements, um, obviously I was beside myself in in those moments, but then um, the amount of pushback and uh, actually like just really like vile things that were said to me over the phone and and in person uh, while I was trying to do that was almost unbearable and I, I went to Canada and then I got it done there um, and in in my situation it, it wasn't a dire situation where I, I got raped or I was a victim of incest it was it was a normal situation that just did not fit for my life um, and so um, I think that it's it's important well, I don't know, just when, when you guys were talking before about uh, it's important to have these laws because because of these dire situations, it's important for everybody because just this conversation and the fact that this is up for debate again is just like it, it causes so much shame for anybody that's gone through this and it's coming from people who have not been close to this situation, I guarantee, ever in their lives, let alone experienced it themselves. So yeah. it's frustrating and it's disheartening that after so many years we, we are backpedaling and, and um, yeah, I guess that's, and I guess my other point is we're not stopping, we're not stopping abortions from happening. We're stopping safe abortions from happening. Yeah. And it's a decision no one ever wants to make. Nobody's running around willy nilly trying to find a freaking abortion. So it's, yeah. it's a stupid thing to even discuss in my opinion. Yeah. Leah, I appreciate uh, the call and, and your experiences. Um, the, the thing that jumps out to me from her call, Barb, is, is again, this, the, the intensely personal nature of these questions and uh, and these circumstances that uh, that people find themselves in and again how far afield that feels from a sphere where government ought to be making the decisions and and again I feel like that's the crux of this debate is is where is that line uh, between what is our own private business and what is the government's business? Yeah, I appreciate that comment so much because it is a good reminder that uh, it, it, there are lots of circumstances where um, women become pregnant and um, want to make this choice themselves. It can even be a medical issue that they should be making with their doctor. Um, and it's also the case that we are really unique around the world in moving in this direction. Um, since 1973, 59 countries have legalized abortion. I happen to be in Ireland, you know, a Catholic nation. Um, on the day they voted overwhelmingly in favor of, of permitting abortion uh, rights. I had a phone call um, following this from an Australian reporter who was absolutely incredulous <laughs> that this could be the state of the law in a country as advanced as the United States. And at the end of our conversation, I asked her, what's, what's the law in Australia about this? She said, what? Oh, I don't even know. Like, you, you just get one. You just <laughs> yeah. you go see your doctor the same way, you know, if I, I need to have uh, uh, a knee replacement or my spleen needs to be removed. I, I discuss it with my doctor and we make a decision. So um, it really is, I think, just a, a demonstration of the, the political triumph of the extreme right in our country. Yeah. Uh, again, uh, Leah, really appreciate the call uh, and the comments. Uh, let's go to Sheila in Redford. Sheila, welcome to the show. Hi. Hi. Um, thank you for having me. Mm -hmm. So I had a couple thoughts. One is, um, well, one is a thought, one is a question. So the first thought was, you know, conservatives were very against the mask mandate because it infringed on their freedoms. How do they reconcile that with then making, forcing women to carry children to term, you mm. know? Yeah, great question. So that was one. And then the second is, if they're saying that um, life starts at conception or what have you, if a woman is in prison, let's say a month, two months into pregnancy, can she sue the state for wrongful imprisonment of her fetus? Hmm. <laughs> that's a great. That's a great question, um, and, and I really appreciate the call and both of those provocative 
questions. Um, uh, Barb, I'll give you a crack at, uh, at answering those. Oh, Sheila, your question about false imprisonment is brilliant. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, let me address the first one first about the mask. Um, so I have two thoughts to that. One is that, yes, it is inconsistent. And I think one of the things, the great discoveries of modern life is that um, many voters don't care about hypocrisy. We saw Mitch McConnell say um, they couldn't um, replace Justice Scalia during President Obama's term with 10 months to go before the election because we should let the people decide and yet push through Amy Coney Barrett with um, less than two months to go uh, when uh, President Trump wanted to nominate her. So hypocrisy doesn't seem to matter anymore. The, The distinction they make, Sheila, is that Um, the right to an abortion is offset by the state's interest in protecting life. And then, as you say, this idea that life begins at conception. And that is, I think, riddled with a lot of problems. In fact, I would love to see a challenge based on um, the anti-establishment clause of the First Amendment, because not all religions believe Mm -hmm. that life begins at conception. The Jewish faith, I am told, believes that life begins at birth, the Muslim uh, faith, but believes that life begins during ensoulment, which occurs around the fourth month of pregnancy. And so, uh, and certainly there are people who don't have any faith, um, who are agnostic or atheist, who would say it doesn't, life doesn't begin until birth. And so, you know, but yet our, our states are taking away a right of abortion uh, based on a religious viewpoint that they don't share. So I think that could be an issue. But your your other question about, well, if there's a life and I'm in prison, is that false imprisonment? I think that's a really interesting question. Could she sue on behalf of the child? And if so, could she obtain her release on that basis? I think it's, I, I think one thing we're going to see is a flood of lawsuits of all different kinds, just like that, which is the reason that we care so much about settled law is so that we have clarity in, and, and so that institutions and people can align their lives around these known legal standards. And when you toss it out like this, it creates chaos. And so we're going to see our courts filled with all kinds of lawsuits trying to figure out the lay of the land now that they've created this, uh, this chaos. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. When we come back, we are going to continue this conversation about uh, Roe v. Wade and its future. We'll also continue to hear from you on the phones and on social media. Uh, Karen in Macomb County, John in Southfield, Stina in Waterford, we still have you in the queue. If you want to join them, 313-577-1019 is the number. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. Listening to Detroit today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. Our guest is Barb McQuaid, uh, University of Michigan law professor, former U.S. attorney, and co host of the Sisters in Law podcast. And we're talking about uh, reproductive rights, uh, the uh, apparent coming change to reproductive rights that is forecast in a leaked Supreme Court opinion. Uh, earlier this week, uh, a devastating blow to Roe v. Wade, which has uh, stood as the law of the land since 1973. We want to know what you think about that, uh, that profound change in the sense of reproductive rights, but also individual rights in a broader sense. Uh, as always, 313-577-1019 is the number here on the phones. You can also go to social media Put comments there, and we'll work you into the conversation. I want to go to John in Southfield next. John, what's on your mind? Good morning, Stephen. Hi. I have a question for Professor McQuaid. The, uh, I think most Americans uh, accept pretty uh, readily and are pleased that our law presumes innocence until the uh, guilt is proven. And I'm wondering why the law doesn't presume that we have rights until there is a proof that those rights should be abridged. It seems to me that they've flipped the burden of proof with this whole discussion the way they're doing it. And I don't understand how the principle would apply in terms of guilt or innocence, but it doesn't, it doesn't apply in terms of basic rights. Hmm. In other words, where does the government have the right to interfere with rights unless it's explicitly said they're not allowed to? 
Yeah. John, uh, you must have uh, been reading my mind uh, for the last three days because I've actually been thinking about that very question and talking with lots of people uh, about it. Barb, this question of enumerated versus unenumerated rights uh, versus enumerated government powers, again, is central in the understanding of what the court is considering um, you know, as as John points out, it seems that the presumption is, in this case at least, that uh, unless there is a specifically enumerated right, uh, that government can can infringe on our individual space uh, as it sees fit. Uh, talk about how we balance that tension in the law. Yeah, John, it's a brilliant question because, as Stephen mentioned, the Constitution has not only enumerated rights, but it also has a lot of implied rights. And this is a thing that so often people who um, uh, are not familiar with the law will will shove in your face and say, um, look, I have a right of free speech. I can say anything I want. And, uh, you know, people will say, yeah, but it has to be viewed in the context of the overall document. And when you look at that, the courts have interpreted that to mean we can put reasonable restrictions like time, place, and manner and the old adage, you can't yell fire in a crowded theater. And so there are all these implied rights. And the one you mentioned is a great one, the presumption of innocence. It is not literally in the constitution. But what the court has said is it emanates from this idea of due process, which is in the constitution. And there are lots of things like that um, that come out of that right to due process, the right to remain silent, the right not to have to testify against yourself at a trial. All of those um, you know, emanate from these ideas of due process and the language that is there. Um, and so uh, as a result of that, what the court found in Roe was that there was this uh, privacy right, even though it is not written in the Constitution, exactly as you say, um, and that we have to give uh, some value to that. So when states are saying you can't have an abortion, they are violating that privacy right. Now, what they did say in Roe, is that the state also has an interest in uh, protecting fetal life. And so they have to offset that privacy right with that right to fetal life. And that is where they drew the line in row at the viability stage. They said pre-viability, there is this strong right in privacy. Post-viability, the, the right to protect, the state's right to protect uh, fetal life becomes stronger uh, the ability to survive outside the womb. And so that's where they decided to draw the line in balancing those two interests. Um, but I think in light of this idea that uh, privacy rights now are, are given less regard than they were before uh, when Roe was the law, I guess I guess we're still there until this becomes official. Mm-hmm. It does put in jeopardy other types of cases that rely on this privacy right, like the right to interracial marriage, uh, which states used to ban Um, The right to same-sex marriage, which we all remember states used to ban. The right to use contraceptives, which states used to ban. So, you know, all of these things, I think, are now back in play and fair game. And although the court in this case, this draft opinion says, we're not addressing those today, I can absolutely see uh, the next case down the road for lawyers to argue, well, that was dicta. That means it wasn't, you know, part of the decision of the case. It was just something that was mentioned in the case. And therefore, those are all fair game, too. So Mm -hmm. uh, I I think we're going down a very dangerous path. And, John, I think your instincts are very strong here that the Constitution is intended to protect rights, um, not to (laughs) uh, take them away until proven otherwise. Sure, sure. Uh, In fact, uh, yesterday on the show, uh, our Secretary of State, Jocelyn Benson, told us she's concerned about the fact that the basis of this opinion targets the constitutional right to privacy, um, which she says could have implications for all kinds of things that we think of as rights. And she says that includes the right to vote. I want to take a quick listen to, mm-hmm. to what she told us. It's also the same reasoning that, that in other cases has found voting to be a fundamental right uh, under the Constitution. And so I think there's certainly the direct impact of what this draft or ultimate final opinion may may bring for the country and for women and for people everywhere. But there's a warning signal as well hidden in the words that um, other long-held rights or protections or freedoms up to and including the fundamental right to vote may also be in jeopardy based on the court's reasoning in this draft opinion. Yeah, uh, a good reminder that nowhere in the Constitution... Does it say that we have the right 
to vote. There are lots of things about voting in, in the Constitution. There are lots of things about discrimination and other things that would hold government back from denying the right to vote. But um, that right in and of itself is not enshrined in text in, uh, in the Constitution. And so uh, this idea that we only have the rights that are outlined there is a really, is a really dangerous one. Um, uh, Barb, I also want to ask you about uh, our Attorney General, Dana Nessel, who has said that if this opinion comes out the way that uh, that it, it, it seems it's coming out, uh, she's not prepared to prosecute uh, under this 1931 law that would become the law in, in Michigan that, uh, that criminalizes uh, abortion from the doctor side. It does not, uh, it does not, um, uh, does not make uh, people seeking abortions uh, subject to, to prosecution, but it does make doctors a subject. She says she won't do that. Well, you are a former prosecutor. Uh, talk through how you would make that kind of decision. Yeah, so prosecutors have discretion. Um, there are laws in the books, and prosecutors obviously don't have the resources to prosecute every law on the books. Otherwise, we'd be busy with you know jaywalking cases all day. Mm-hmm. So prosecutors prioritize cases. And you know we had prosecution guidelines. We didn't publish them to the world because we didn't want to tell the world, hey, here's the way to flout the law and get around them. Um, but we wanted to prioritize the things that we thought were the biggest challenges in our community uh, to promote uh, you know, public safety and promote public well-being. And so uh, we chose which laws we would prosecute, which we would stand down on. In fact, you know, a good example of that during the time I was there, uh, marijuana was still um, unlawful in Michigan. We got a directive from Maine Justice, DOJ, that, um, that only under a few rare circumstances should we be prosecuting marijuana cases. And now those are, are even off the books. And that was published. Uh, again, the priority was opioids and uh, harder drugs, heroin, cocaine, um, things that were leading to uh, deaths and drive-by shootings with gang prosecutions. Those are the kinds of things. So, so I think those are very legitimate factors. Um, but I, I do worry that, you know, that's great for now until she's out of office. Mm-hmm. Most of these prosecutions are done within the counties. And so um, there are certain county prosecutors who've taken similar pledges, Karen McDonald in Oakland County, Kim Worthy in Wayne County. But in some of those out counties, um, I think we're going to see prosecutors who are on board with this. Um, And I also worry that despite this pledge, you know, this is only as good as these people are in office. And when they change hands, it could change the the lay of the the, the landscape. And I still think that if there is a law on the books in Michigan, providers are, are going to be nervous about performing abortions. There will be a chilling effect on providers for concern that they will be subject uh, to prosecution by some entity, and they'll just get out of the business of performing abortions. And so it was you know, the de facto case will be you have to leave Michigan if you want to get an abortion. Yeah, yeah. Uh, again, 313-577-1019 is the number here on the phones. Let's go to Karen in Macomb County. Karen, welcome to the show. Hi, uh, Hi. good morning. Thank you for having me on the show. Oh, boy, Mm -hmm. I've got a lot to say. Uh, There's a lot to unpack. (laughs) We've only Um, got a couple minutes left, though, Karen. I I know, I know. Let me talk quickly. My message to SCOTUS and um, all the religious zealots who are trying to jam their religion down our throats, if you don't believe in abortion, don't have one. Men, don't tell us what to do with our bodies unless you plan on having a vasectomy to make sure there's no unwanted pregnancies. Also, we're not Stepford wives and do not try to inflict a handmaid's tale in becoming our reality. We're not going to have it. This is so concerning because our fundamental rights are in such dire straits of being stripped away from us. And it also violates our 14th Amendment rights. This is just absolutely horrendous. It's a massive attack on women and minorities. It's yet another attack on democracy to replace it with autocracy. And that is downright frightening. Mm. I would encourage everybody to pull up George Carlin's (laughs) pro-conservative. Boy, does that ever ring true today. I've seen a lot of people. I don't even know how how in the world our constitutional law 
professors going to be able to teach this fall? What in the world can they tell their current law students? Well, gee, we used to have a constitution, but, you know, the politicians and SCOTUS decided to turn it into their um, private Karen, toilet paper. Karen, I, I really appreciate especially the passion that I can absolutely feel uh, in your voice about this and, and the anger. We have a social media comment also that talks about this feeling like an assault. Deborah says, uh, yes, I know what it feels like to be assaulted as I was assaulted when, interestingly, I was six months pregnant. Um, Barb, I'm going to give you the last word. We've got about a minute left. Again, the emotional reaction to this, the the, the feeling that women in particular have um, is just so palpable. Yeah, I guess, you know, I'd like to end on a hopeful note. Um, I think that, one, this is going to really energize not only women, but anybody who cares about uh, constitutional rights in America to get to the polls um, in August and November. Because now if this is going to the states, we have the power to uh, make laws the the way we want them. And so it's going to be a battleground in the states. Um, I think uh, Governor Whitmer has filed a lawsuit in Michigan uh, against this 1931 law to get it struck down. And so there is some hope, but I think, uh, you know, there's that phrase, uh, the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends toward justice, but it doesn't bend by itself. So uh, we need to get active if we want to shape the law in a way that reflects our values. Okay, Barb McQuaid, always great to have you here with us on Detroit Today. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, Stephen. Appreciate the conversation. It's going to do it for us today. Come back tomorrow when I'm going to talk with author Kristen Green about her book, The Devil's Half Acre, the untold story of how one woman liberated the South's most notorious slave jail. Really interesting book, really interesting conversation. This is 1019 WDETFM, Detroit's NPR station. Your connection to news, music, and conversation. We'll be back tomorrow. <laughs>